What's going on, guys? Zane here with Everything Vive. I want to welcome you back for another episode. In today's episode, we have a special treat for you guys. This is an interview we have been looking forward to uh, bringing to you, and it is with Nathan Burba of Servios. And if you're not familiar with Servios, you're probably familiar with the game they put out, which is Raw Data. And Raw Data is probably one of my favorite games uh, as I go into in the beginning of the interview. It's actually one of the games that sold me on getting a Vive in the first place. And I know that's not just the case for me. Uh, it's fantastic. The multiplayer is great. There's a great player base out there. And I've just had a blast playing it. And it's, it's one of those games that immediately puts you into the whole, what everybody talks about in terms of immersion when it comes to VR. Uh, and it's it's just fantastic. I can keep going on about it, but we got a whole interview that I want to get to. So a couple quick things before that. We are giving away two free Steam keys for the game for raw data. So make sure you enter. And for those who are not familiar with it, we're going to do it through our usual YouTube entry system. And that is uh, all these episodes have a corresponding episodes. We post them up on YouTube as well. So I believe this is episode number 69. Make sure you go ahead and find episode number 69 on YouTube. Leave a comment and let us know. Let us know. I, well, we'll make it easy. Let us know what your favorite part of the interview was, what your favorite story that Nathan told was, uh, because he's got a lot of fantastic stories. And uh, if, you, if, if you're looking for somebody who's been in the industry for a while that has been around and has seen it kind of develop, uh, you're going to really enjoy some of the stuff that he brings to the table today. So uh, for the entry, make sure you let us know, leave a comment, and we will draw two names at random and probably not uh, next week, but in, in two weeks. So I guess in two episodes, we will announce the winner for that, uh, for that just because I will be out of town next week, but we will still have an episode that has been pre-recorded for you guys. So um, moving on, one other thing, also for the Steam gift card. Now this is a completely separate giveaway, but we give a Steam gift card away at the beginning of every month. Uh, we started in May, and so we will continue that in June. And the way that you can enter is by leaving a review on iTunes. We're really trying to grow the podcast out on iTunes. So uh, leave us a review, uh, let us know how we're doing. I hope that it's a five-star review, but this is, you know, we just want some honest feedback and, and uh, you know, some critical, constructive criticism to help us grow and continue to get better. But uh, leave us a review there, take a screenshot of it, and send it to contact at everythingvibe.com. And those instructions will actually be in the show notes. So two giveaways, two Steam keys for raw data and the monthly Steam gift card. And once you guys enter, you guys are entered in for life. We'll be giving these away, drawing one at random every month uh, and announcing it on the first episode of that month. So like I said, June is coming up faster than we faster than we know it, and uh, we'll be announcing our next winner then. So without further ado, we will jump into the episode and hope you guys enjoy. Nate, how's it going? Hey, how's everything? Everything is good. I'm here with Ronnie. Ronnie, how you doing? Doing well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with both of you. Absolutely. Well, Nate, um, I am, well, we both are very excited about this conversation. I know uh, we've been looking forward to it for a while, but before we uh, we jump in and get the backstory, I just want to give a little backstory for myself. Um, as we were talking about beforehand, Ronnie. So Ronnie invited me over. I went back in August to learn or just to try out the vibe. This is my first experience, real experience with VR, and um, I was totally blown away. And one of the games that actually sold me on buying a vibe the very next day was Raw Data. And so um, 
I mean, there were, there were several games, but Raw Data is the one that stuck out to me the most. And I know just in in becoming kind of the VR guy with, you know, amongst my, my network with people who come over and try out the Vive at my place now or who go to um, some of the, you know, the Microsoft store and try out the demos there, they always come back saying, man, I just tried Raw Data. It's one of the coolest games ever. I need to get a Vive. Zane, tell me how I can do it. <laughs> so... Just want to start out giving you kudos for the game because you did sell well, me. You. you did sell me on the Vive, uh, but going from there, uh, I guess if we can just start at the beginning, um, how did how did Servios come about? How did uh, the idea for raw data come about? And maybe a little bit about your background in in VR. Sure, sure. So it's um, it's a little bit of a long story. So uh, you know, brace yourself. But, oh, we, we got time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I guess to kind of tell the story properly, I have to go back to um, you know, well, just I'll tell it a little bit about, about myself first. Uh, you know, I'm kind of uh, someone who has, uh, in one way, shape, or form, been either playing or developing games for a long time. Um, was kind of uh, an amateur game developer in high school, and ended up going to Ithaca College for my computer science degree, and did some game development there, and had always kind of been involved in that, um, did some work in software engineering just to kind of um, uh, learn about how to be a professional software engineer. Got an iPhone game development. Um, I ended up uh, publishing the Cocos 2D cookbook, uh, which is uh, Cocos 2D is the um, iPhone game development framework that's used to create games like Angry Birds. A lot of those kind of 2D physics-based games use Cocos 2D. Um, and I, I kind of uh, did that and then ended up getting into USC's interactive media program. And that uh, was kind of a very fertile ground to um, meet a lot of people and kind of uh, really get involved in anything that was new and interesting that was kind of coming out of that ecosystem and kind of lo and behold VR was coming out of that ecosystem um, so uh, to kind of uh, tell the story I guess um, I, I went I moved to Los Angeles in 2011 uh, primarily to go to USC and I ended up getting a job as a research assistant at the mixed reality lab and that's a lab that's part of the Institute for Creative Technologies uh, that happens to do a lot of virtual reality-related research. Um, but this is at a time when virtual reality is is really just something that's most people just don't really know about. And honestly, going to the lab at first, I didn't really know about it. Mm -hmm. I'll admit from the start, I wasn't really a big virtual reality guy. I wasn't reading Snow Crash and all those things. I, mean, I love The Matrix <laughs> and I love those things kind of you know conceptually, but I, I, I wasn't someone that was pontificating about the possibility of being in a virtual world in the future and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I had played EverQuest and I had done, done things like that. And, you know, it's all cool, but I, I never really kind of like considered them to be the same thing. Um, and when, uh, while I was working at the lab, I met a brilliant researcher named Palmer Lucky, um, who was working there. He's 18 years old and he's developing head mounted displays. And, you know, he was um, intimidatingly brilliant is the, the best way I could describe uh, Palmer. Hmm. And just really just a force of nature. And, um, you know, it was uh, him, uh, Mark Bolas, uh, a number of other researchers at the lab um, who were working on a number of different projects. Um, and uh, basically, I, uh, uh, what is it, James Iliff was there in 2011 as well, working on a project called Shade, which was a, a virtual reality um, kind of like game research project using um, the phase space uh, system which is a motion capture virtual reality system uh, that they were using at the lab, very kind of clunky and difficult to work with um, kind of uh, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And most of, it, most of it was used for research. And the game they were making was just with like a super early version of Unity that had you know, really kind of gotten popular pretty recently. And so you know, it's kind of very much a school project. Um, but when I was there, I got introduced to head mounted displays kind of through Palmer and through the work other people were doing. I was there doing Microsoft Connect research myself. 
um, and uh, basically developing some applications that were funded by the U.S. Army in particular, um, and just honestly trying to make trying to make an extra five thousand dollars a semester so I can help pay my bills. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, doing game development as part of the interactive media program. And I ended up meeting meeting James there and meeting Palmer there. And uh, basically, in February of 2012, uh, an idea hit me, and I think actually this idea hit a lot of other people. Um, at the roughly the same time, kind of based on what I've seen, um, some people working at CCP, uh, specifically Adam Craver, who's now our head of research, kind mm -hmm. of this idea hit him around the same time. Uh, the people who helped build VR at Valve, Roughly around the same time, um, Sony as well, Richard Marks, uh, a lot of those guys. This, this kind of idea started to kind of bubble up, you know, um, uh, roughly around around the same time. And it was, it was really simple. It was like, okay, I I looked at um, the phase-based tracking system and kind of um, LED-based tracking systems. Uh, I looked at the Razer Hydra, which had been released a year prior or two years prior or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I started to get a sense for kind of what a tracking system was. I looked at the Connect and I was doing Connect work, um, and then. I was lucky enough to be in a place where they had access to head-mounted displays, and and really they had, you know, they had built at that lab, Palmer specifically, some of the best head-mounted displays in the world. They had a head-mounted display called the Wide Five, which I would say is, you know, on par with some of the head-mounted displays you'll see today, or like a little bit, not quite as good. It's clunkier, and it's a research piece of equipment, but it's pretty mm -hmm. good. And mm -hmm. Palmer was also doing head-mounted display work at home. Palmer was 18 years old and had the largest collection of head-mounted displays in the world mm -hmm. um, in his uh, like, in his, like garage on like Long Beach or something. <laughs> so, um, so basically, uh, you know, I, I, honestly, I, I'm a game developer who was research-oriented and kind of also a very physical person. I like to play sports. I like to, um, you know, I kind of... Uh, fancies about uh you know having a sword and a shield and you know really like those kind of like melee combat focused games and movies and stuff i love the game chivalry you know for example uh, mm -hmm. by torn banner um and like all sorts of you know like like lightsaber battling and all those kinds of things and i always wanted a more realistic experience like i would play jedi knight 2 and it was like this is cool <laughs> but this is like you're, you're speaking my language like literally yeah, every like, game that you're bringing up uh, yeah oh yeah it's like, this is like it's like quake with a lightsaber right and it's like it's kind of cool but it doesn't quite do what I'm expecting. You know, you had Star mm -hmm. Wars Arcade where you kind of could fight against Darth Vader in like the final level and it was kind of what you wanted but not really. Like, mm -hmm. I always want to do that thing where, where you're with your friends where you're, you're fighting with like like swords and stuff and you're actually kind of, you know, acting some of those things out. And so the idea of taking my physical body and bringing it into a video game mm -hmm. um, was a very compelling concept. And so, um, you know, with this the basic idea of motion tracking and, and uh, my understanding of that technology, and then the idea of a head-mounted display and how that worked and how that whole loop worked as far as having an IMU that was fast enough and kind of going through the render and, and being able to do that, kind of solving an engineering challenge and being able to render things properly, being able to warp your scene correctly and do chromatic aberration and all that kind of stuff relative to the optics that you had to design as well. And by design, I mean find because you're not it's, it's expensive to make custom glass optics it's not something that a lot of the researchers go through they end up using optics that are already designed anyway it's a whole process and luckily enough people at this lab palmer being one of them had gone through this process where i could put all those pieces together and go kind of holy shit um you know this is possible for me to be inside of a video game well and, and it, it's it's yeah. funny because when you put it in that context actually like me picturing you guys in this lab when all of these other i mean around that same time period like you said the connect was coming out you know for the xbox and microsoft you had the Wii having tons of success in a way kind of trying to sell the idea of hey we can 
we can allow you to somewhat improvise and have these pseudo one-to-one motions that didn't really end up living up to the hype, but they were this, this promise, right? And a lot of, there was a lot of excitement around all of this stuff. And it sounds like, it sounds like for you, you, you saw these things, but you were, it, because of where you were, you had access to these, to these much more advanced, much, much, much better realized versions of these things. And and you knew that there was there was some potential there, right? That, that this stuff yeah. could could kind of, it's just kind of interesting to me because like it's said, all about knowing what's possible, right? I mean, it's kind of um, you know, it, let's say uh, I don't know how, how much you guys know about MEMS technology and and, and IMUs, but you know, if, if an IMUs ref, uh, kind of um, the speed with which uh, it's latency, basically, right? Yeah. If it's if its latency was ten times what it is from a fundamental electronics level right? Mm-hmm. None of this stuff would be possible, right? VR mm-hmm. would just not exist. Mm-hmm. Or if you couldn't bend light as much as you could using the optics technologies that we have available today, if that light bend was half of its, um, you know, uh, ha- you, half of uh, the, the, the kind of angle was half, the, the, um, the rotation angle, I guess you could, you could say, uh, you know, then you're field of view would be cut in half horizontally and mm-hmm. VR would suck, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you couldn't, um, you know, if you just couldn't render a scene as well as we can or render in stereo or if you didn't have Unity or Unreal, you didn't have game engines that, you know, that that a layman person can get into. If game engines, game engines used to be a giant pain in the butt, you mm-hmm. know, before Unity existed really. So there's all these different pieces that had to like get made to a certain level of quality and fidelity um, to allow any things, these things to happen. And it's a lot of pieces, a ton of pieces. Um, and so this was the time when it was like, whoa, there's like enough pieces, you know, like, and you, I can start to kind of see them all. And so what um, what I started to do is I started to say, hey, I kind of want to do something here. I kind of, I, I was compelled. I just felt like, when, it's like once you recognize that something is possible, mm-hmm. you, you just like you need to do it. Like there's nothing, you just don't think about anything else. And so I just need to do this. And I started to kind of, Talked to my boss who at the time it was Evan Suma and talked to Mark Bolas and you know kind of the older guys at the lab were like oh yeah sure you know research project whatever blah 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 they're kind of you know they had their own things to do and they had been they had been doing VR research at that point for 15 years like they you know they're like sure another thing go go ahead whatever um, they they didn't kind of recognize the watershed moment um, but the younger people did. Uh, Palmer did, James did, you know, people who are, you know, roughly 20 years old uh, kind of really understood it. And James and Palmer and I had this, you know, in my opinion, a very magical moment. I think it was probably it was more magical for James and I than I think it was for Palmer because Palmer was kind of used to this sort of thing. But, um, you know, we were basically being chauffeured around in a limo to like an offsite. What was it? We were, sorry, we were at the IEEE Virtual Reality Conference in 2012. I still have little um, USB sticks that say this from back from then, uh, <laughs> like so swag, cool. swag that I got from it. But basically, um, we were at that conference, and you know everybody had research papers and doing different things, and um, it was all pretty boring, all pretty academic. And uh, Palmer, James, and I had jumped into a limo to be taken to a uh, offsite location where a company was showing their telepresence, like holographic technology, I guess you could say, with like mm. a giant giant like uh, piece of glass and a mirror and if you sit in a certain area in a room you mm. can kind of see like a representation of something blah 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 um, but anyway uh, while, we're in, while we were in the limo we just started talking about the, the possibility of, of, of creating a holodeck and how it's possible today and we have all the pieces and we started going off on that and uh, and then basically um, Palmer was like yeah this, this kicks ass if you guys want to do something I could you know be an advisor or whatever and he even gave us the idea of like if you had you know if you had um we were thinking about taking two people 
and putting them in virtual reality together. And then it's like, oh, you could put them on like a steampunk airship and they could fly that airship around together. So because Palmer is, uh, you know, he's a huge nerd, huge gamer, <laughs> un- understood the problems of locomotion implicitly, mm-hmm. like just from the start, right, all the way back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were kind of riffing on ideas about that. And so James and I took that and we said, let's run with it um, because USC has the structure called the Advanced Games uh project essentially it's it's um in the interactive media program and it's uh you know uh basically for two semesters you produce a game and you have a project lead usually a director and then a project producer and um you get you know you kind of uh try to gather a bunch of people from the class into your team and it's just a, it's a, what i call a crucible it's like a you know it, it's a system for creating games right and so we wanted to create a project to pitch to advanced games. If I didn't do this, I probably just would have pitched some other project to advanced games, mm-hmm. um, but, but we wanted to do this one. So we came up with the idea of calling it Project Holodeck um, mm-hmm. and basically started to design out uh, you know, something where we were going to create our own hardware system for virtual reality and create a game for it. And it was this ridiculous idea that's still, on, it's honestly still ahead of its time. Like <laughs> what, what we did back then was more complex than what, is available now or kind of how we're doing things, how, how people are typically doing things now. Mm-hmm. It was a, um, a two-player multiplayer game where two people are in the same space, a reasonably large space, a little bit, I would say, about the size of a Vive play space, maybe a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. And then both players are completely wireless. So they don't even have wires. Um, and then it's, you know, it's multiplayer. So they're in the same virtual world and then they're like, like flying around and fighting en- enemy NPCs and exploring a virtual world, um, you know, in a way that you can't even do in most games right now. It's kind of like, uh, it's, it was kind of like, um, Battlefield 1942 meets Skies of Arcadia. It's kind of the, uh, it's kind of the high <laughs> the concept. Airship, right? That, 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 exactly. that, that's, that pulled through. Exactly. So, um, so we went ahead and, and put together kind of the nuts and bolts of that project and started recruiting a team. This is like in March or April of that year. Uh, we pitched it uh, and it got accepted to USC and, and Palmer was there showing off one of his headbender displays that he developed at the time, which would be kind of one he developed at home, which would kind of turn into like a proto version of the Oculus Rift. Mm-hmm. At that time, he was also talking to John Carmack. Yeah, um, I remember some of these interviews because I, I, from the outside, starting to kind of see some of the Palmer Lucky stuff and, and Carmack stuff around that time period, I think. Yeah, so that was when that stuff started to kind of um, to bubble up, and uh, basically um, James and I put together that project. And as we got into it after that summer, uh, that summer the project holodeck, uh, you know, USC building a holodeck meme blew up, and it was on IGN, and we we're like, holy shit, you know, like we're like I've never been on IGN before. This is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and video we put on there, and it was you know, so it was like it was kind of like an on ball meme. It's it's happening, you know, um, and so uh, basically. Um, we started the project, and and what I think we quickly realized is that we were in way, way, way over our head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of like dove in headfirst into something that I barely understood—a project that would need electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, um, you know, uh, multiplayer, networked multiplayer game development, um, managing <laughs> a large team, and uh, you know, recruiting a large team, which I was terrible at. And we had honestly a lot of just dead weight on the team because I wasn't a very—I oh, didn't have to understand that you need to like test people and make sure they're good. It wasn't—I was like, hey. Just come on, come on board. We'll, you know, it'll be fun. It's, and, it's um, easy when you're in the beginning stages just to be excited about it, though. Yeah, well, and, and this is the way we, I, I've, I've figured out, is the way we learn. Uh, me specifically is just make mistake after mistake after mistake <laughs> and, and somehow just grind, grind through the mistakes. And so with this project, we went through a, a lot of rough patches. It was turnover. We had to, um, and, but through that process, like we had maybe like a 40 person team or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I was the director and James was the producer. And through that process, essentially, 
basically four people came out of it who were were very good and very talented um and uh that was myself james and then alex silken who's now our cto and then graham manajewski who's a co-founder and software engineer and basically through that team like i basically was the head of research and the hardware engineer and the you know electrical and mechanical engineer <laughs> the project and i was doing game development scripting and, and a bunch of the creative work on the project as well. Uh, James doing a lot of the creative work and then basically the management and production side of it and then a lot of the design work as well. And then Alex and Graham doing a ton of the engineering work basically. And it, you can kind of take that project and how big it was. And by the end of it, um, just to kind of sum it up, there was the four of us in Graham's garage in Newport Beach, I think, or no, Redondo Beach, freezing our asses off. Wow. Uh, pictures of this me wearing like a like a like a few jackets or something and we're basically uh you know i'm i'm i have a skateboard helmet that i'm drilling pvc piping into and i'm attaching a razor hydra and a playstation move to it uh <laughs> with our uh, you know originally it was our socket head banner display and then we got an early version of the oculus rift because uh, from from laird who was the coo of oculus also he was also our professor at usc um <laughs> yeah, just, you know, uh, just real quick just to get a little bit of back so at this time period so you guys are you know, full on, full in now, you know, at this point, you're really, um, you know, making a big dent and you're, you're working on your project. What, were you doing something else like a, as a, as a full-time job or were you like, how are you getting paid at this oh, point? I was, uh, I was a student at USC. I was in their MFA program. Honestly, I took out a bunch of loans to pay for the school. I had no job other than, um, I had my research gig at USC, but I think I left that at that point. Honestly, I was just doing this. I mean, I was uh, my my lovely, uh, brilliant wife Julie was pretty much floating me this entire time <laughs> and uh, lending me money. And um, yeah, it's not like I had that many expenses. I mean, our, our apartment's reasonably inexpensive, and sure. uh, you know, help just maxing out credit cards essentially, um, and uh, just kind of not give it a shit, you know, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at this point. Um, you know, I, it's essentially one of those things where if you have some uh, faith in yourself, mm -hmm. you can take a chance on yourself and um, push those potential bills into the future, right? It's like, take, you know, so it's like, like, fuck you, future Burba. You know, you can pay. <laughs> right? like, I'm, gonna, I'm good for now. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of... Um, and I how, feel like how, you you had the perfect group of four, right? That you guys were all in on, in on this together, and at this point, you really believed in each other too. And yeah, well, I mean, I, I think James and I bankrolled most of it. I want to say okay. um, we're kind of like the like the executive, you know, co-founders, and Alex and Graham are kind of like the the engineering, a little more head down co-founders, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I think I probably spent five or six grand on credit cards and. James spent a few grand, you know, like three or four grand or something like that. And, you know, we had to buy the laptops for the backs. We had to, you know, I had to go to I had a bunch of trips to Home Depot to buy different pieces to go into it and, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, just making sure we have all the tech that we need. But then, um, you know, I remember this magical moment where um, we were in the, uh, the garage and we finally got two people working with network gameplay properly in VR. And I'm watching... Um, I'm looking at two, you know, it was Alex and Graham, and they're both, they have headbounder displays on, uh, like they have headbounder displays on, uh, it's early version of the Rift, and they have um, bike helmets on with a PS Move thing sticking out of it, another PS Move thing on their back with a laptop on their back, Razor Hydro controllers in their hands, and they're walking around, they're standing on this airship, and they're kind of like touching each other and goofing around and like kind of like talking and stuff. And as they're talking, I'm like just watching the server in Unity from a third-person perspective, I'm just seeing both of their characters wow. kind of 
doing that at the same time, just like messing around with each other in the virtual world. And it was just like, holy shit, you know, like I'm watching these two guys like, you know, screwing around in VR while they're like about to play a game. This is this incredible, uh, you know, kind of uh, moment. Not, nothing like this had ever been done before. This is at a time when there's no such thing as room scale VR, right? Like it's not... There were no products that were announced. Um, there was, you know, VR. The only thing with VR was Oculus, and it was all about a head-mounted display. Yeah, I and remember at that time, you didn't even have the outside sensor. So it was just basically just like rote. Uh, you know the tech, the technical terms more than I do. Only but three, it was only three degrees of freedom. Exactly. Uh, you know. It was very, yeah. uh, compared to what people are used to today, it was r- very rudimentary. So, yeah, so I'm watching this and it's just, uh, you know, it, it, it's really incredible kind of uh, seeing it all come together. And, you know, this whole, pro- the whole project was, it was very like tenuously built toward the end, but we ended up getting it done. We had um, two players. And, and by the way, from the start, it was all, you had to have more than one player because it's like you can't understand who you are without having another person, right? Like that was a critical aspect of it. You know, if you were the only person in the entire world, how would you even have an understanding of who you who you, you yourself are? So just there was curious, a lot how, of that. How, how did that tracking work? Because if you were using, like, what were you using exactly to, to augment? Like, you you know, you were using one of the earlier yeah. Rift kits. And so, then- so the Rift had the three degrees of freedom sensor in it. And then uh, we had the PlayStation Move was in a, it was inside of a PVC pipe thing that was on a helmet on your head. And basically... <laughs> There was a um, the best way to describe it is there's a rigid mounting between the the PS Move and the Razer Hydra. So the Razer Hydra um, you know, base was sitting on the crown of your head, mm. and so we measured the angle, you know, essentially the transform between those two points. And with that transform, we could then derive exactly where your hands are relative to your head. So huh. now we have those three positions, and then your your head mounted display, like you know like the position roughly works out where um you know you're essentially providing that uh, those other three degrees of freedom through where that ball is so all we need to do is figure out what the transform is from where the ball is to where your eyes are roughly right and everyone's wearing the the same helmet so it's roughly the same thing and then uh you know because of that you just hook up the transforms in unity and then the transforms help you derive those positions naturally because that's what unity does that's why unity is so critical this whole process um and basically uh you know, that allowed us to get the tracking of the head, the tracking of the hands was there, and, and Hydra is a great product. It gave you tracking of your hands, even if you put them behind your back, you know. And what was great is that your hand tracking might get a little shittier if you move them further away, but just move them a little closer to you and they're fine. So when people would look at their hands, their tracking was great yeah. because the Hydra sensor was so close. So it was, and, and they would press the analog buttons, the grab buttons on the controllers, and they would see their hands animate. And so people would go into VR like they would today, but this was four years ago, That's right? Nuts. Or four yeah. and a half years. So, I mean, there were people who you never used a headbanner display before, and then you got into multiplayer, full motion, completely wireless VR. Because oh, you, you had a laptop on your back. So I had these custom-built laptops from Lenovo that basically had um, giant batteries in them, and they would overheat. It was a big pain in the ass. But basically, those were hooked up to the headbanner display. They were designed to run while they were closed, and I would VNC into them. So from kind of like our server configuration, I would basically, uh, you know, VNC is incredible, by the way. Like it's just I, software I've been using for such a long time at this point. Um, but basically, you'd VNC into the laptops, make sure they were running, do any diagnostics, kind of that way. Because you, so you basically would like access people, and we don't even do this today, right? Like I don't, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like it's even looking back at it. Like I would VNC into someone while they're in VR, and they'd be like, "Hold still, hold on a second And I'd be like, "You know, I'm at a, a console, like typing something. You know, making sure like running a console command for them, and then boom, <laughs> that would like help them out. Like we don't even do that today in VR. There's a yeah. bunch of stuff you know, we we still don't do. But basically, that was how we would 
set those things up correctly. Um, and then we had the server that we would run as well, and we'd have to have both things connect to the server, and we had to kind of automate that. So it was a reasonably easy process every time we did it. Um, and then these were wireless too. So the um, the laptops were connected to a wireless router uh, that would base, it's a local wireless, it's not on the internet or anything like that. Um, but the laptops were connected to it and the server was connected to it. And basically you would, um, you know, turn them on, have them connect, have them boot up the game, have the server boot up the game, have it auto join essentially. And then boom, you're now in wireless virtual reality. You just have like a cable going from all the stuff that's on your head. And then we would kind of bungee up the cable or wrap it up. So it's, you know, it was in a nice kind of, you know, look like a, like a, like a brainstem type thing or something and that would go into your backpack and so um, and then backpack was crazy it even had um, it was a mesh backpack that we bought I think we bought it from Walmart or something like that <laughs> and it had uh, it had like a it had a, a case fan you know we put a case fan in it basically <laughs> to cool it um, and uh. then uh, yeah we had like uh it was all this just intricate configuration of different cables. I mean, this thing was, you know, it was, it was engineered. Like, it was, I took a lot of pride in engineering this thing and actually getting everything to kind of work and be reasonably durable. I had a cushion on the bottom of it, so when you put it on the floor, it didn't hurt the laptop. And, <laughs> it, you know, it had a handle on the top. It was just like a whole thing. And so, you, you know, you'd wear this this backpack and it had little holsters for the vi or for the hydro controllers so you could put them in the sides. Um, so it was a nice little thing. You could set up the whole thing in 20 minutes. Like, you could bring all the equipment. And um, you had actually, the one critical thing was a uh, tripod. So I had this tripod, typical camera tripod, with then a PVC pipe that was maybe like three or four feet tall that was kind of like almost like telescopically. It wasn't, a tel it wasn't telescopic, but it would have been nice if it was. Uh, basically, it's sitting on top of the tripod, which I created like a custom mount for. So there's a lot of – this is where I had to learn all a bunch of mechanical engineering stuff. <laughs> um, but basically, it had a mount on the top of the tripod. That, and then basically, what this did is it very simply allowed me to mount a PS Move camera maybe like nine feet up in the air angle it downward at its furthest angle down. So what we would do is we would make sure that the tripod was straight, that the camera angle was as far as it would go. Then we measured that angle. So we always knew what that angle was. It was a very mm. similar angle every time. Because then what we had to do is we had to do a... Um, the PS Move has to kind of know what that angle is to properly tell that you're kind of walking across the, the, the ground kind of flat. So um, we had to make sure that we kind of are able to get the... Uh, that spatial transform correct. And what that does is that's your, um, it's called, uh, shit, what's it called? That's your ground truth position. So you get your ground truth position from that because that's literally on the ground. And then that's how you derive all your other positions. And now you're a character in VR. And then you have a PS move on your back because we had actually a little mount for another PS move one. We had four of them. And luckily the thing could track up to four points. And that um, would track on your back. And that would give you your back rotation uh, and your back position. And so your character, this is actually, it's we don't even have this in VR right now. You could move your torso like you could rotate your torso you, could, <laughs> you, look, you look right and your, your torso would move because your huh. torso wasn't right so you had a lot more animation and then you know we used ik for the arms and everything like that we had to build our ik system for that you know back then and so you had a full body that you could you know walk around the so ship at, and basically so at this time stuff. i mean so you guys are just putting everything together to really see what what is theoretically possible with what technologies were available to you i mean yeah what i mean well i'll be honest here the we we kind of knew what we were doing from the get go. Like it wasn't like, oh, what's possible? Sure. The idea for this whole thing pretty much hit me like a bolt of lightning. Like it was all pretty obvious. It's like, okay, controllers, and you can do this, and you can do this, and you do this. Hey, that works. Like it, it wasn't it wasn't that experimental. And I honestly yeah, yeah. think it's it's still not that experimental today. Like we're 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 just our games that we make today are basically the same. Some of the same basic design principles. Yeah, you know, there was no teleporting back then, and there was there's a few wrinkles that I think we do now. And Sprint Vector is a whole Sprint Vector's 
a million more wrinkles, right? To me, that's like next level. That's next level shit. Mm. Um, but this paradigm for full motion VR, yeah, we just we found it real fast. Yeah, because you knew you already knew the technology, so you kind of knew if we just put this together, it should work this way. Yeah, and it was it was it was fairly obvious, you know. I mean, you have a head, you have to look this way. Like it's all pretty standard engineering stuff. Like when if you just think about it, it's it's all pretty much right there. Were there any things that surprised you? I mean, during this whole how hard it is to make a multiplayer game. I mean, game development is fundamentally difficult. Um, I mean. Tons of little surprises along the way, um, but uh, you know, I think I think probably what surprised me is that it was so new that people didn't really know what they didn't even know what to think about it. Like people were they were absolutely blown away if they ever played it. And actually, what we would do is we had this trick um, to really blow somebody away is when they're, after they're done playing, like we put them we have the light on in the room when we put them in VR and then when we're done <laughs> we would, like the light is off mysteriously it just happened to turn off while they were in there <laughs> that's actually so a really good cuz when that happens naturally it always does leave a, a a bigger effect on people yeah and what i learned is that we basically um you know in effect we made a brainwashing device and uh <laughs> you know like when people came out of it they're just like they're like i'll do whatever you say <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> kind of like like type of thing so um, so it was really incredible, but even like, I mean, we had professors at USC who were just, I don't know, just people, they couldn't grasp the, the, like the, especially people who are a little bit older, I hate to say, a lot of them couldn't understand the incredible power of kind of what we were tapping into. I think a lot of people have a lot of, um, they're just fundamentally skeptical and they're not willing to suspend their disbelief to, to see something that's kind of new and incredible. Mm. And so it stops them from just opportunities, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, luckily, you know, the people who do see it are, you know, they're the heroes. And we had, um, after we had this, we did this project and we presented it to USC and it was like, a, you know, a whole, um, a whole thing, we did a whole, uh, you know, part of their show in, in May and everything. And when it was over, I still had a year left at USC, but, um, I basically, uh, you know, James and I at that point were, feeling the entrepreneur kind of, you know, potential of all of this. And we went ahead and said, you know, let's go ahead and start a company. Um, it was originally called Holodeck LLC, but then we we went through a branding process to come up with the name Servios. Um, and uh, James and I did a ton of work in terms of how we build out the company. Uh, we had a lot of, um, USC is a fantastic network for this. There's USC Stevens, which mm. provides you with uh uh, uh, attorneys and uh, you know we uh, saw so IP attorney we used to this day is the one we got from USC Stevens hmm. uh, a guy named Eric Tenizaki and uh, we um, you know were basically they helped us incubate the whole thing in terms of putting all the paperwork together to start a corporation um, to allow us to you know try to make something out of this mm-hmm. and the, the original idea was yeah let's just take um, Project Holodeck and, and try to consumerize it right because remember once again no Vive no PlayStation move, no one doing this. And so um, the first bet was like, holy shit, this is really cool. Let's try to make it into a product. Um, and uh, let's see, what was I? Uh, oh, yeah, so well, yeah, go, James and I were, yeah, go pretty ahead. Go ahead. We're, we're pretty savvy early on. We actually had people in the project sign IP agreements to make sure that James and I had a um, own the rights to the work that people were doing. And then mm-hmm. in turn, people got a... Um, a uh, full uh full license to their work in perpetuity so essentially uh you know we had licensed everybody's work i forget it was one way or the other but essentially we were able to utilize it for corporate purposes later on sure. and transfer ownership to servios but at the same time if you wrote code as part of the project you own that code too and you can go take it and do whatever you want with it so it was important to kind of get all those ducks in a row mm-hmm. to be able 
take that research and keep moving on it, but do it in a corporate fashion. Sure. And so we took the four of us, started up as co-founders, um, and then uh, our um, c- our composer, actually, Jeremy Tisser, composer for, for Wild Skies, um, and then for another project we were working on, which turned into Zombies on the Holodeck, um, we uh, basically his father and uncle uh, were um, excited about what we were doing, and we created uh, multiple business plans and kind of iterated on those with them. And when we got to a certain point and there was that potential, they ended up being our two critically important seed investors for the company. Hmm. Um, and so they invested uh, a total of $250,000 in the company, and that allowed us to open an office, hire a, a few people, specifically an industrial designer and an electrical engineer. And when uh, was this now? I'm just trying to make sure. This I... is in uh, May of 2013. This is okay. the sort of fact founding of Servios. Okay. And we hired a few people. We hired an artist. We hired, uh, like I said, an electrical engineer, industrial designer, um, who are actually still with us to this day, um, Umez and Rasek, or Umez the industrial designer and Rasek the electrical engineer. And now they're actually, you know, Umez is doing UI, UX for games, and Rasek is doing audio engineering. Um, and basically, uh, you know, we started up a, a small team, started to work on Zombies on the Holodeck. And, and at that point, we... Um, we started to try to iterate. You know, we started to try to refine our design. We brought on a, a brilliant, brilliant guy named John Selstad, who is now up at Leap Motion, but was there with, with us for about two, two and a half years, kind of on and off. Um, and basically, we started to uh, create kind of like the Gen 2 uh, hardware of what we were building and kind of the next game that we would work on. Mm-hmm. And um, and honestly, a game that I still want to work on, which I think still has a ton of potential. Um, but basically... Um, we uh, created um, a, a very small backpack that you could wear. It looks like it's like the same size as a, um, you know, the thing that the Ghostbusters slide out to catch the ghosts in. Mm-hmm. Uh, just looked like that. It even had a handle on it, um, and it was 3D printed. It was me. It was basically me getting into 3D printing and um, learning how to use SketchUp to kind of create things in 3D that I would then print and effectively bolt together, um, <laughs> along with, you know, essentially taking smaller things off the shelf and putting them together to create this little backpack that you essentially wear. Creating straps for a backpack, by the way, is incredibly difficult. If you don't know how to sew, sewing is a critical part of a lot of this stuff. <laughs> it, um, seriously. Uh, it's like, no, I, right? yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. If you can't sew, you should learn how to use gaffer tape, man. Gaffer tape was critical to the founding of Servios. Um, <laughs> that stuff just solves every problem that you have. It's like the greatest thing ever. Um, and, and you can only really find, it's tough to find good gaffer tape unless you're in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but basically, um, we created this smaller version of the backpack, created a single player game that was a little bit more easy to kind of deploy. Uh, and then, um, you know, so it was only one person playing, but then it was a very visceral kind of juicy experience. And this was Zombies in the Holodeck. And mm. at that time, you know, Zombies in the Holodeck was kind of the most advanced VR demo you could get. Once again, Room Space VR, way before Room Space is VR. Mm. But it had, because of James and his work on it, it, it had incredible high, incredibly high production value. And uh, because of uh, Alex and then... Um, uh, an artist that we had, Brandon, who was very talented, um, uh, you know, and Graham's work on it and everything. Like, it was just a really fun, super juicy, like, wave shooter. Like, basically, we, I guess we kind of created the wave shooter. I don't know if it's a wave shooter. <laughs> like, the wave shooter in, the holdout shooter in full motion VR is basically the the thing that we made that I, I don't think anyone else had made up until that point. No, because that, uh, yeah, you it, didn't even have the, the setups for that, so. That's true. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, you know, bully, bullied us. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, that was Zombies in the Holodeck, and it was it was super fun, and it was like it was scary. Like people would be in that demo, and they would just I mean they would freak the fuck out. Like they <laughs> it was it activated their you know this intense 
fight or flight response. We had this axe that you could pull off of your your shoulder, and you had to like you know kill the zombies before they would get to you. And uh, you had a grenade you could pull off your chest and throw at them, and you had a Tommy <laughs> gun, and it was just awesome. And it was uh, you know it was something that created a great experience. And what we did is we took that experience. We actually and we had a few false starts of this. We had a earlier version which was kind of uh, a little bit crappier with like a backpack that you know, we weren't exactly sure where to put the Razor Hydra tracker. Um, so we took it out of its shell, and we, we kind of tried to put it on the back at first, but it was it was too far away from the hands, and it wasn't a good spot. It didn't have a good mounting point relative to the the overall optical tracking. And so we ended up um, we ended up basically creating a system that was similar to the PS Move. It was actually our homemade system. So we started to kind of internalize the technology a little bit. Mm-hmm. We had um, God, I mean, all all this stuff. Like we had an LED that we sat inside uh, at the base of a ping pong ball. Um, like a big fat ping pong ball we got off of like Amazon that we dre- dremeled a hole into and then we like puttied it onto the top of it. Oh and then gosh. that was like sitting at the top of uh, like an arm that would go onto this mount that we had on a head mounted display. I remember at one point, this is just a random <laughs> story, but it's ridiculous. And then we had, and at the base of that, we actually had the Razor Hydra coil inside of like a box that we had 3D printed. And this was all stuck onto the top of the, um, of the uh, so, Oculus Rift. So, so in any of these, when, when, you're, when you're coming up with these ways to get around problems, uh, do you, were there ever any concerns about like the pr- practicalities behind it or ever commercializing it? Or it's just do what you got to do and just make the game yeah. as fun as possible? I mean, at that point, you know, with a handful of people on our payroll um, and kind of having meager, you know, salaries, um, you know, we had like nine months of runway, maybe, um, sure. or maybe a year of runway. So it was kind of like make the cool thing to raise more money, Got right? It. That was really all we were concerned with. And, you know, it's like make the cool thing and make the business plan, right? Those mm-hmm. were the two things. And, you know, if you like you do whatever you can to make the cool thing and then you figure out how you're going to transition into making the consumerizable cool thing later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but to, for us, I mean, you know, we, we made version one of our, um, you know, brainwashing device already. We're like, okay, how do we make version two of our brainwashing device? And then how do we find, <laughs> you know, a great person to brainwash, you know, who can be our investor? And it's not what, you know, we want to work with, like, it's, it's critical to find really awesome people that you want to work with. Um, but at the end of the day, you're making a product experience. You know, like, there's mm-hmm. different types of startup companies. There's part- startup companies that, um, you know, they have a great, uh, you know, kind of, like, financial plan or they have one thing or another thing. What we were banking on is great product experience. Like, product experience that is so earth-shattering that, you know, you, you like, you look at the world differently when you come out of it, right? And that's what Zombies on the Holodeck turned into, um, and, it, you know, by necessity. And um, I remember this this one really like ridiculous story where well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. But so um, <laughs> sorry about that. So basically, you know, we created this this new version. It's slimmer, it's lighter, it's easier to use. Um, and basically, you know, had these. Uh, it was really interesting design. Where essentially, instead of laptops, we had our own little custom kind of computer that we made with batteries on it. And you know, we started to kind of get closer to technology. We got closer to the metal, essentially. And then we made a game that was tighter, that was had higher production value. Um, and we, we what we did is uh, when we had like three months of runway left or something like that, or three and a half months, uh, James and I said, "Fuck it, we're going to go up to San Francisco, and we're going to live up there. Uh, we're going to rent." a um you know like uh an apartment which cost us about like, it was like four grand a month or something it was expensive nice. i rented it we had to do it fast so i, had, I rented the thing uh. sight on sight unseen i just saw pictures of it 
And it was important that I, I saw the pictures because it had to have enough living space for both James and I, and it had enough space in the living room so that we could <laughs> demo full motion VR uh, and do it kind of reasonably well and kind of host people there and all that sort of thing. So I found this nice place in Noe Valley. Mm. Um, and so we, we went up there and uh, we um, basically every single day we would, um, you know, Alex and Graham and a few guys were, were back at Servios HQ in, in, you know, near Culver City with this office that we had rented down there. Uh, and basically they were, you know, making updates to the, up, up, updates to the game um, while I was up there, you know, with James with the hardware while we were iterating on the business plan every single day. And then we were pitching to investors every single day. Um, and basically that was, that was our life. And we would play like, um, I played FTL when I was bored by myself or we played uh, Loadout. Um, we played a lot of loadout, uh, loadout three, three, um, you know, just, just play games and stuff and, you know, go to like parties, me trying to meet people, you know, and just trying to get sure. in, get in places. And, um, we just worked our way up, up networks, you know, and, uh, met a lot of very interesting people. And some people was a dead end. Some people opened doors for us, you know, or someone who opened doors for us, uh, was a guy named Roy Bahat who heads, uh, heads up, uh, Bloomberg beta, um, uh, you, you know, uh, a big VC investor, and mm. uh, he didn't invest in us, but he sure as hell introduced us to a lot of people. Uh, Eric Klein, one of our early advisors, awesome guy, video game experience, hardware experience. Um, so, kind of, you know, it was us working ourselves into networks. And as we worked up those networks, um, you know, we were also being advised by Robert Nashak, who's now our chief operating officer, and he pulled in a ton of contacts from EA and, and, and all over the place. Um, and basically, um, we were able to uh, work our way up to talking to VCs. And, you know, our, our, our demo got a little better as we made some kind of modifications to it and made sure everything was kind of ship-shaped to make sure that the experience was really good. Mm -hmm. And then we iterated on our business plan and iterated on it and iterated on it. And just like, you know, James and I were up there for two months probably until we started to really get some really solid VCs in the door. Mm. And the timing actually worked out really well because... Right, I actually remember. I remember this moment with very, very good clarity. I remember when Oculus was purchased, um, and it was—I think it was in April of 2013—but mm -hmm. uh, it was you know, acquired for two billion, right, or, or something to the like to that mm -hmm. effect. About I was that, at, yeah. I was at um, Intel, uh, and I was um, in the like the. Uh, there's Conan and Brian did a bit about this, but the Intel offices are like they're like all just cubicles, uh, and. Um, and I don't know what it is about Intel, but uh, it's, it's, it might be a little non-PC, but like everybody there is Indian, or like a lot of people are Indian. Um, there's a lot, of Indian, really, a, lot of, a lot of brilliant people in India, so there's just, I think, specifically Influx Microsoft, there, yeah. Microsoft and Intel just take a lot of the Indian engineering talent, mm -hmm. and, so, um, and they even flew people down. We were demoing to them and trying to talk to Intel Capital, and I think at one point they flew down some... Um, some engineers from Oregon to talk to us. Um, and we were talking to their, one of their groups, uh, I forget what it's called. There's something computing group, like human, like basically their HCI group or their, you know, um, group that has their, their real sense camera. And I remember, I remember reading on my phone that they got acquired and what happened is that kind of turbocharged the entire sector. Hmm. And now you have all of a sudden you have a bunch of VCs who are just turning their heads going, you know, there might be exits in this space, the space that they barely even knew about at that point. Mm -hmm. And you get a billion dollar exit from Facebook. It's like, holy crap, there's a little bit of a gold rush. Mm -hmm. And so like a few days later, we started to get really solid VCs coming in to see what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And we got uh, a really, really, um, and before, great, yeah, just real quick before this time. So around this time period, I mean, obviously you knew a little bit about what was going on with Oculus, obviously, and some other, but like, did you guys, 
were, did you really know what a lot of other teams were working on? Was there kind of a community, a, right? a community around this stuff? Were you guys competing? Like what? Like because when you're going out trying to get you know VCs to be interested in what you guys are specifically doing, I'm just I'm just kind of curious what that looks like. You know, I, I can't remember, um, and I'll be honest. It's also uh, part of what you do is analyze the competitive landscape so you make good decisions, and then mm-hmm. the other half of of what you need to do is completely block that out and forget about it mm-hmm. um, when, when you're trying to get work done uh, because it can be crippling to look at the competition. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember um, at, at that time there were not there was maybe one or two other there's a handful of people making Oculus Rift plus HTC. I'm sorry, Oculus Rift plus Razer Hydra games. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were kind of, uh, what is it? Um, you know, people like, uh, well, Oculus Maximus, for example, um, was, was a good one kind of back then. And the gallery guys, I think, got started pretty early mm-hmm. uh, making some of that stuff. And, and we had released a version of Zombies in the Holodeck, actually, that people could download. And I think it was like the number one rated Rift title or something way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, one that was like black and white and you could walk around with the, with the Razor Hydra and it was, you know, it was pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> basically, um, you know, it was uh, like there were people doing that. I don't know how, how good it was from like a startup standpoint. Honestly, there was not much of a startup scene for VR back then. Hmm. Like, there wasn't like we people weren't like, oh yeah, we just came from this VR company and now we're talking to this VR company and blah 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 VR VR VR. It it really wasn't a thing, you know. Um, and it's it's now it's a huge thing right now. Mm-hmm. But back then, um, there there people were skeptical around VR, but the the Facebook thing catalyzed it. And then there really there wasn't. It was kind of like um, you know that scene in Forrest Gump where they're on the boat. And uh, you know, all the um, all the other shrimp boats get destroyed in the hurricane, but they're the ones there's somehow was left. <laughs> yep. so they go out. They're one of the only boats. And there's a fish like there's shrimp everywhere. Like it's it basically what happened to us. <laughs> uh, and, like you know, there was this, we were exactly what people were looking for in a market where there just wasn't very much of that, especially up in that area. Because you know, game, game developers are pretty diffuse. They're kind of everywhere. Um, they're not as localized in something like Silicon Valley. And even us, like even ones in LA wouldn't have been up there. Like we, we just happened to be up there. Um, and so the timing worked out. And then I think our, our first money into the company was a woman named Renata from uh, Felicis Ventures. And she actually uh, came in and saw what we were doing. And then right after her was a, a guy named Rob Coneybeer who ended up being leading our Series A round. And they basically knew each other and they like passed each other by. And whenever you can, um, whenever you're trying to close a deal, you got to generate heat is what they say. You got to have you know, people, multiple people who have interest, right? And so that worked out really well. And, um, you know, Renata put kind of the, you know, offered to put the first kind of institutional VC funding into the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Rob wanted to, to lead our, our round. And um, at that point, it was kind of half hardware, half games was kind of our thesis. Mm-hmm. So we ended up raising a Series A round of uh, $4.2 million. And uh, moving forward, we opened up a new office uh, in Culver City, started hiring out basically uh, more people on the game development side and more people on the hardware side. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, we started developing, uh, essentially, the, we switched to Unreal at that point because Unreal had just come out. And we mm-hmm. basically made the, uh, essentially the um, strategic decision to pick the engine. Because Unreal went open source, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. If you're engine is not open source sometimes it's really hard to get over that flash five percent in fact unity will let you modify the source of unity a little bit if you have a special like license with them because of this mm-hmm. um and, and open source like we wanted to have something that was more powerful more professional than what unity was at that time and unity's gotten a lot better since then mm-hmm. but still unreal gave us that kind of opportunity so we switched sure. to unreal um and we started developing 
something that was more like a science fiction game um, to kind of be a little more mainstream uh, to also fit into some of the hardware stuff that we were doing. And this game at the time was called Bullet Time Apex. Um, and actually, that evolved into what raw data is today. I remember. Uh, I, did Bullet did did you guys ever release information about Bullet Time Apex? Like at the time? No, no, no we okay. didn't. It actually, kind of sucks. We had a really awesome level called the Plaza, and it was basically this like Metal Gear Solid style sneaking mission with like you know like more normal locomotion. The problem is the locomotion is the, made some people nauseous, some people not. But mm-hmm. if it didn't make you nauseous, man, it was really fun. And um, you know you had to like sneak through like you landed on a rooftop and you had to like fight your way into like a like a uh, you know kind of like a, a vent or a duct and then you had to like crawl through the ducts and it was multiplayer you do it with like two players hmm. uh, and then you like uh, you know crawl through the duct together get down to like another area fight your way through kind of like GoldenEye like also a, definitely a GoldenEye influence cool. um, and then kind of battle your way down to like the lower parts of the level where you're um, you know you're using you're only one character we used to call him Scuba Joe because it was like our <laughs> own character and all, all of our characters by the way are um they all look like people at the office um so uh, <laughs> oh so scuba, man okay yeah. go ahead <laughs> so if you ever meet anybody so scuba joe our original character looks just like justin Corey, who is our lead artist uh, lead artist in raw data also he modeled that character um and uh so oddly enough just modeled it pretty much like a <laughs> And like so, it's totally similar hair and everything. And it was Scuba Joe because he had this like sneaking suit on, like Metal Gear Solid style sneaking suit. <laughs> and then the character we made after that, after it refactored kind of our character system and everything, was Bishop. And Bishop looks just like Eugene Elkin, who actually was the uh, one of the primary developers of Oculus Maximus, and who I, I recruited to come onto our team and move from Florida over here. And Eugene's like the coolest coolest motherfucker in the world um and, and so, so is justin honestly but uh <laughs> eugene's, a, eugene's a software engineer and basically um he looks just like bishop um and then uh basically um uh Demon, or actually our, our our lead character artist looks um just like boss and uh what is it uh Saija, we haven't figured out what Saija looks like under the mask yet uh, <laughs> i don't think we have but usually uh we usually have amy from our marketing team kind of like play Saija if, you know, <laughs> at the real world um and then uh, we're not sure who elder is quite yet we're figuring that out but usually they end up looking like somebody at the office is pretty funny um <laughs> when are they gonna but, have someone uh based on you i don't know that's a good question <laughs> um yeah, I'm not sure about that. We'll, we'll we'll figure that one out. That might be in a different game. Um, that'll be the that'll be the talking simulator. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. But anyway, um, you know, we started developing that, and what we were doing at that time, because the hardware still hadn't come out, is we were developing our next generation of our hardware alongside developing the next generation of our software. And uh, unfortunately, I can't talk in too much detail about the hardware because mm. it's something that we developed and then shelved mm. um but it was cool like there's things we did with that hardware that have still not been done today mm. um and we have a lot of hardware knowledge that um has helped informed a lot of our design decisions mm. and um we still you know we talk to some of the uh hard hardware developing companies and give them pointers and things like that um, because of the stuff that we had been developing um, but that kind of interest in hardware and interest in research has given us kind of a leg up it's allowed us to, to develop a lot of complex technology that other people just simply don't have at, at what um, point did you guys decide to kind of focus on the software side and shelve the, the hardware side I don't know if I can talk about that specifically, to be honest. Sure, uh, sure. But uh, you know, I think it was um, it was a decision that we made uh, based on seeing a lot of the other devices come out and kind of 
it was really the realization that there's like winners and losers in the market. You know, mm-hmm. seeing um, I think uh, seeing the Vive come out was a big uh, you know seeing the Vive have success, seeing Sony PlayStation's plans, Oculus moving toward going to, with the Touch, and, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that you know something I talked to, to Palmer about, and you know it, everyone kind of understood that you need really need to get your hands in VR, you need to get your body into VR, and mm-hmm. it also just the mounting difficulty of shipping a hardware product. I mean, for the hardware product that we wanted to develop, we probably needed to have, you know, a lot more money than we raised to ship it. Mm. Um, it's just a simple fact of the matter. You want to build a complex hardware system that you have to make some custom parts for. It's going to cost you um, to really ship it and ship it to a, a reasonable amount of people. Like, um, you know, it's it's you're talking north of $100 million, right? And we didn't know that at the time mm-hmm. um, because we're just a bunch of punk kids trying to trying to do something. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy with the amount of information that we kind of gleaned, and I, I have a very good understanding of the manufacturing sector and all sorts of different things, developing chips and things sure. like that. But it's, um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. And really, it's, it's the products that get produced today, unless you have a megalomaniac like Steve Jobs at the helm, uh, they're going to be um, commodity hardware. There's a reason why all the laptops, like, like I, I complain about this all the time, but every laptop is a piece of shit, except <laughs> for maybe the MacBook Pro and um, the the Razer, uh, what is it, the Razer yeah. Blade. Yeah. Like the, there's a, one or two others that are maybe halfway decent, but they're all just basically crap because they're commodity hardware. They're, they're produced as cheap as possible. They're, they're produced, as they say, by the lowest bidder. Um, and, uh, like even touchpads, like all the touchpads suck today. I don't know why, like even the ThinkPads, they got rid of the older touchpads and now the newer ones are kind of terrible. Mm -hmm. They don't even have buttons anymore. So it's kind of like, it's tough for these devices to really get produced kind of properly with any quality. And what we were kind of doing, um, we were kind of being like the Apple of VR in some ways from a hardware standpoint. And as we got down that path and we, we had, you know, a really cool product, but it was like. You're talking about research challenges that there's only a handful of companies in the world that can solve. And you're talking about Valve. You're talking about Oculus. For Oculus to make the tracking system that they made, which, by the way, I think is incredible. Um, I still think it's the most incredible tracking system anyone has developed. They literally had to they had to hire uh, Steve Lavelle, the guy who like um, uh, wrote the book on like motion planning. You know, like they literally have to find the best people at their respective fields in the entire world. And bring them in. They have to find, you know, the fathers of modern rendering and computing. Like they either had to have John Carmack or Tim Sweeney. And if they didn't <laughs> have either one of those guys, like, or you know, and they and like, and then they had like Michael Brash. Like if they didn't have those guys, yeah. the thing wasn't going to happen. You know, so it, it took so much incredible brain power that, you know, we for for like we we were punching way above our weight. And what we started to realize is that okay, for us to develop this piece of hardware, we need like one of these 10 guys and they're like all Korean, you know, mm. like they're all just, in, they're all just in Korea working at Samsung or something. <laughs> or we need like, you know, like um, we need like a, a head of research who's like, you know, there's like four people in the world who could be that head of research. Wow. And a lot of it, it ended up boiling down to like me and John Selstad and like one or two other guys who were really smart, but like, but it, it was just, it was a lot, man. It was way, it was way too much. And so, um, you know, as, as we started to kind of realize that we, we pivoted to, to doing more, uh, just to focusing on software, really focusing on games, and that ended up being a very successful move um, and something that was closer to, I would say, what the DNA of the company was. Mm-hmm. And when you're running a startup company, like you need to know what your DNA is, know yourself. You know that will lead you in the right direction and something you can really 
follow through on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that uh, put, helped push us forward. And another thing actually that was really critical to us was recognizing that um, the design for raw data doesn't need to be earth shattering, that in fact it should be pretty um, like kind of not original. That mm-hmm. was a big moment for us, and and when the project really moved forward, we were like, like uh, we got a great our design director Mike McTyre came on board and was like, all right, look, it's a it's a it's a, a cross between a, a wave shooter and a tower defense game, like kind of like Orcs Must Die or, or or even a little bit like Payday or Payday Two. Sure. Boom, there's the game done, make it and ship it. And once we had figured out the design, everything was able to move forward, and we were actually doing a lot better. And and Mike takes a great approach to design; he's just he's very matter of fact about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you know that helped us. Um, kind of realign what we were doing, and we stopped kind of being floating a little bit in R and D land, and we were able to kind of um, get down to kind of rubber meets the road traction of putting the game together that um, was a good baseline for us to kind of ship. And it, it's turned out fairly well. It still has some problems, like the first level of raw data. And if you're, you know, if you only play the first level or two of raw data, you're hearing it from me now. Please play the other levels because the first level or two, they just don't represent what the rest of the game has to offer it's a it's a bigger more full-bodied game after that Mm -hmm. and um that first level was designed that way because it was a different game it was literally a holdout shooter where you couldn't teleport around so now that you could teleport we had you know another big part of the level open and we you know we use that for our original level because of uh the asset production costs are very high for Mm -hmm. kind of the realistic style that we're doing Mm -hmm. but the later levels we open them up and there's a lot more things going on and i think you'll see with the games we're developing in the future they're going to be much larger, much more expansive, much more interesting, in my opinion. Raw data is great, and it's raw data is an amazing IP, and it has great gameplay. Mm-hmm. But it's I think it's not as it's not as big as we want it to be. We want to go big in the future, and mm-hmm. our, our our future titles are going to feel a lot bigger. I mean, Sprint Vector, you're you know burning through miles and miles of of, of real estate while you're playing. You know, it's a different fundamentally diff- fundamentally a different experience. Yeah, I was gonna say actually. Yeah, so Zane and I both got got to to try a Sprint Vector, and it was. I mean, like you said, it was kind of amazing the first time you play it to really feel like you, I mean, you you cover such a, a huge amount of space compared to what you're used to in VR. And it was one of those things, I mean, definitely, because we were, you know, looking at, we had heard that, you know, you guys were working on new uh, locomotion alternatives in the game. And, you know, so we were kind of trying to, you know, gauge our, our, our thoughts on, you know, is this going to... I. Definitely the amount of space we covered and the sp- at the speeds that we were covering them and everything was so intuitive. I mean, it was really, I mean, we, we hadn't tried anything like that in VR before. So how did you, I mean, was that your, was, was that one of your focuses is that you wanted to find a way to kind of expand? Was, was it more locomotion? Was it more expanding and finding a way to, to make that all work? I mean, what was the, the primary yeah. driver? Well, I mean, so first off, in games, people want to move through space, right? And you want to really move around. You want to kick ass. Like that's what you do in games today. Um, and the fact that the vast majority of VR games don't provide that is a huge problem, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. you know the main draw of games is moving through space. It's, it's arguably the most fundamental, the most fundamentally human interactive thing you can do is move around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the inability to do that is is a big kind of crippling thing, uh, literally crippling. So um, you know 
we uh, we initially had a demo where it was just all about movement. It was like, how do we move around the world in a way? How do we make you feel like you have that kind of ability? And so we had our um, obstacle course demo where we had, you could climb and we had zip lines and we had giant kind of like Mario, Super Mario style, like moving platform things that you had to jump on and then duck or another platform would hit you. And then you had to like jump and climb up something. It's actually pretty, it's still pretty damn cool. And we're going to be using stuff like that for games in the future. Sure. But we couldn't, we couldn't figure out what the gameplay was though. Um, and we were having a hard time thinking about making turning that obstacle course demo into something that would really kind of like stick, I guess, and have some something that's an interesting concept to it. And um, we were kind of inspired by like MXC and um, American Ninja Warrior and, and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and I guess like Guts, and, you remember from Nickelodeon yeah, back yeah. in the day? Yeah, yeah that and, sounds uh, like a really cool concept for VR. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so that's what we were kind of, you know, initially thinking about. And then um, what we went through is we kind of shelved that project after a prototyping process for, for like a month where we had, you know, developed that. Mainly it was Alex Silkin and then uh, Reed, uh, one of our uh, artists, uh, basically them working on it. And then essentially um, we picked it up later and then we said, okay, we're going to turn this into something. And um, they, you know, brought on one or two other people and, and basically uh said okay we're going to take kind of a mario mario kart-esque approach to this and turn it into kind of an adrenaline platformer where you're not only platforming but you're racing um so we're going to take those elements that we had built and then build more elements on top of it and then amp the speed up to give you like a real sense of purpose mm-hmm. um and on top of that we'll add like announcers i've always wanted to make games with announcers announcers are awesome like, <laughs> guy, yeah. like that's such you a know nice, he's like such a nice headshot touch to guy it. Yep. yeah or the multi-kill guy from unreal tournament like i always love that sort of thing yeah and uh you know a big sports fan so um basically uh you know we, we wanted to create something like that and uh andrew one of our designers started uh working on the locomotion system and that's where you know we went through a little a few iterations but getting that that last piece that was missing honestly uh was how do you run how do you run forward right how do mm-hmm. you how do you not get nauseous but go from point A to point B in a very simple way? That was the one piece that was missing from Obstacle Course. You could, you know, we had a few different ways to do it, but honestly, on the Vive with its touchpads, which I'm not a big fan of, I prefer like a joystick. Sure. Um, but but even that, just used as basic motion, will make you a little bit nauseous. Uh, the touchpads, you know, by using them to move forward in a pretty simple way, was just not working in VR. And so we wanted to create something that allowed you to move. And what we found is that the faster you moved the easier it was to solve the nausea problem. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, okay, so for our first crack at this, we're going to move fast because we know that's going to help us out. Mm-hmm. And so that's where moving fast, moving straight, motion lines, all those things um, started to kind of work within the realm of trying to solve that nausea problem. And then once they got that working, they started to add pieces to it. Here's how you jump. Here's how you climb. Here's how you fly through the air. Uh, you know, And then we're getting to here's how you drift. Here's how you wall run, right? A lot of it's predicated on movement mm-hmm. um, and the ability to get going reasonably fast so it kind of synergizes well with the kind of racing aspect of it. it almost, um, it's it, almost kind of like a real life like SSX or like something like you, you feel that sense of speed but at the same time you feel like it's it's really you you're the one that's that's pushing yourself forward you feel like I, I mean I, I haven't I, I don't know if internally I'm sure you guys have, have had multiplayer matches we, we only played you know one player and then you know switched off but I, I can imagine everyone kind of uniquely, uh, even though the routes are set up pretty, you know, like to guide the player in a way, at the same time, I can imagine every person kind of having their own take in, in what what types of movements they're doing, how they're hitting ramps, all that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, I mean, I, people definitely have a few different 
styles. And so this went through a lot of testing, and it's very much a um, testing-based, you know, iterative process internally at the studio. And we're very, um, you know, Unreal is a very old-school engine, very monolithic engine in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. We're pretty old-school in our development practices. At the end of the day, even though we're, you know, a pretty big company at this point, we're like 80 people, mm -hmm. it's just, it's really like, you know, 60 of those people are game developers or 65 or mm -hmm. something like that. And they're all just a bunch of people in a room making stuff and, um, you know, testing it on each other and, and playing it together. And through that process, we were able to figure out kind of what works and what doesn't, how to tune, tune these mechanics properly so that they don't make people nauseous. Mm -hmm. And under that, the auspices of moving fast and, and, and racing, you kind of always, you're constantly giving people that, thing they need to do which like pumps them up a little bit and and, and it's uh you know they're um it's almost like you don't have time to get nauseous it's like you have things to do you have to race you know <laughs> and, and and so uh it, it's it's worked out very well and we want to a lot of the the mechanisms that we've used to move you around i mean the mechanism we use is pretty simple it's basically that part of your brain that knows that if you push off of a wall your whole body will move mm -hmm. it's just that it's mm -hmm. it's that over and over again in a bunch of different ways. And so we want to expand that in the future to more locomotion systems, moving a little bit slower, moving through the world uh, for the purposes of combat, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's there's a lot there. And so this system uh, is what we have, we call fluid locomotion. And it's something that a lot of our games are going to have moving forward. And it's, you know, one of the things that we think um, we can develop, we have that ability to create that kind of secret sauce. It requires a lot of low-level detail work Mm -hmm. um, that is, uh, you know, not very, uh, not very easy to pull off. Um, sure. and so, uh, you know, we're, it's something we're very proud of and it's something that's going to be in sprint vector and then we'll be in some of our titles moving forward. Very cool. Yeah. It, I don't know if, I mean, this is kind of just something that popping popped into my head as you were talking about that, but it sounds like based on your history that you're not, your Servios in general doesn't, doesn't sound like the kind of company that likes to make a lot of compromises. Like in some ways, I mean, obviously some compromises are necessary, but it sounds like at least internally, you guys are always, you know, looking to the future, um, coming up with new and exciting ways of solving problems, uh, even hardware related problems in the past. I just kind of curious where you see locomotion going. And as far as, I mean, do you, it, right now, it sounds like you're, you're mostly focused on the software side of, of, of kind of, you know, more stationary type of movements, but how do you kind of balance the software stuff with the room scale stuff? And, and what's the, what's, I guess the correct way going forward for, for, for some of, for VR to take, uh, you know, the, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, VR is definitely a very interesting, fascinating, complex market. You know, we don't have all the answers. We definitely make compromises with regard to developing products for the developing software for the products that exist right now, sure. and for the uh, the fans right now. Uh, you know, people. There's a great market for the Vive. People absolutely love it. The fans, the people who play the games are awesome. And, you know, because they're Steam PC Master Race people, you know, they kind of get it. They're, they're, they're willing to fight through a little bit of difficulty on the hardware side because they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're on, they own a PC and PCs have their own quirks anyway. Um, so we really like that market as a starting point. And then we kind of branch out and grow from there. Um, I personally think that not only, you know, does full motion VR have a great place um sit down vr does as well depending on the use case mm -hmm. and then honestly just regular video games too like we're you know i don't see a difference between vr and, and video games to be honest yeah. um that's my take on it uh i you know when you want to make vr you use a game engine when you make a game you use a game engine because games in real life are fundamentally the same thing mm -hmm. um so we like to make 
kick-ass experiences that are new and interesting and different. And, and then we, you know, like to, to, to make incredible products and, and, and make money that way. Like that's what we, what we are passionate about and kind of passionate about doing. Um, and, uh, so right now our big focus is active VR. Uh, that's, having your body in the world, um, feeling embodied, feeling kind of the real like presence in the world. And then uh, you're exactly right, kind of not being limited by anything or not compromising in that world. So not compromising is, you know, there's two parts to it. One of them is, uh, you know, spending capital to make great products and, and making new innovations that allow people to not get nauseous and allow people to move around, all those things. Yeah. And then the other side of it is is making it so that the best way to describe this is kind of not giving a shit if the little people get nauseous. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you have to like in the future, we're going to have games where like the best way to describe this is that when the doom came out originally, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who played it. who got nauseous. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, it was a very common thing and that didn't stop it from becoming kind of a big cultural phenomenon. And I think people, you have to have a little bit of courage. You know, if you have a developer, you know, if you game developer with like 10 people, right. And you make a game where, you know, Eight of those people don't get nauseous, and two of them get a little bit nauseous. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Ship it. You know, like that's a great game, probably. And if if some people can't play it, then I don't know, fuck them. Like like that's not for them. You know, <laughs> yeah. like they're, yeah. you know, they're, and 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 you're gonna have to like people are gonna have to learn to get their VR legs. They're gonna have to learn to get their VR stomachs a little bit. Not everybody rides a roller coaster. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have roller coasters. Mm-hmm. You know, like roller coasters mm-hmm. are awesome. Mm-hmm. So I, I think as the market expands, I think the problem right now is that everybody has to. They're, they're, people are trying to make sure that everyone can play their product because the market's so small that that's how they, they make money. But that's not the way that the market is going to expand. The market is going to expand by making something that's so damn cool, even though it's, it might be only for be for 60 or 70 or 80% of people, depending on how their, um, you know, their sense of balance and equilibrium kind of works. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of, uh, whether they're, whether they get simulator sickness, sickness or not, which is what this is called. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to kind of not worry about that like as much um, to focus on making something that's just mind blowing, mm-hmm. and then uh, that will expand the market. That's, it's funny. A lot of the words you're using, kind of, I think, uh, you know, kind of touch on one of the questions when coming into this interview. Something that I was going to ask you, and you've you've kind of hinted, you know, at it, and, and really touched upon it in a lot of what you've been saying. But you know, Servios has had a lot of success, I think, by by any standard, really. I, I think you know there are tons of of developers out there that have worked on VR projects that would look to what you guys have been able to put out and what you've been able to achieve. And, and really, you know, you guys, you know, set the standard in a lot of ways for, for, for what's possible in VR right now. Um, I was curious as to what you internally view as your main, as, as your goal and what, and what you set out to achieve. Because obviously, I mean, it, you said it yourself, uh, VR, VR is video games right now, right? Like there's not a whole lot of difference between well, whether... Oh. Well, it's not, that, it's not that VR is video games now. V, like there's no difference between... A VR video like, game, I should like, say. Like, like anything that you make in VR is a video game by definition. If you make sure. a, a, um, a real estate application, you sure. just made a video game. Is what, is what I'm saying. They all okay. use the fundamental principles of video games. Sure. And you're going to make, if your real estate application is going to be interesting and useful, you should, you, you are a, now a game developer. Anyone who crafts an experience for someone uh, and, and uh, is effectively a game developer if the experience is holistic. So if you, sure. you know, if you um, design the inside of, you know, if you're an interior designer, 
right? And you're 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 trying to take the user flow, uh, you know, how someone kind of walks into your space at first and how they feel and all those kinds of things and how they're going to interact with your space. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a game developer, basically. It's the same stuff. So that's that's the approach that that we take. That game development is actually kind of the the fundamental knowledge that then other other pieces of knowledge um, kind of come from when you're trying to craft these experiences. Because at the end of the day, we're we're always experiencing things. That's kind of our our lens with which we look through something. If you want to make someone interested in buying a house that you want to have walk through, you better craft their experience of going through that house. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. So yeah, so with with that in mind, I guess why why did why is Servio so focused on on virtual reality and creating experiences in virtual reality compared to all of these other you know because it's a small segment right now. There's not a ton a huge user base yet. You know why VR. And I guess with that in mind, like, what are your what are your goals as a company right now? What are you sure. what are you setting out to achieve? So, um, well, there's two reasons for why VR. Uh, one of them is that um, VR is new, and so when when something is new, all the best talent flocks to it. All the potential money flocks to it, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to. You don't want to be doing something old and boring. No one's going to be interested in doing that, right? <laughs> no one wants to join you. You're not going to have any kind of, uh, you know, potential, I guess, to to grow and to build something. Um, and then the other reason is that it kicks ass. You know, like it's <laughs> it's, it's it's the thing that's going to make all of our dreams come true. You know, like yeah. it's going to allow us to do the things we've always wanted to do. I always wanted to fly through the air. I always wanted to be a badass cyber ninja. You know, in 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 like Japan. 300 years from now, like, I, I, you know, it's just like, you make so, a compelling point, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not, it's like the combination of those two things. Um, you have to be, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to be somewhat of an opportunist, but then at the same time, do the thing that's in your heart. And when those things line up, you're good to go. Very, very cool. Fair enough. And, and what, I guess what Ronnie was alluding to earlier, I guess, on the topic of success, I think you were I think you were kind of getting to your question, but I don't know. maybe you didn't sure. maybe you didn't hit it. But just just to kind of piggyback off of that, um, in, in terms of looking at our, you know all of the the accolades that raw data has has achieved and how popular it is, you know what when you guys look internally, what how how do you define success? Like what what is something where you guys look at it and you're just like, yep, we we set out what we wanted to achieve or what we wanted to accomplish or we exceeded our expectations and surprised ourselves. Like what what are what does that yeah. look like internally? So, it's two there's two parts to it. One of them is the output. It's a high quality product. Uh, but then the other side of it, which is as important, is an efficiently produced product. So, you know, it takes someone 4 hours to do a job instead of 8 hours to do a job. They did. They had fun doing that job instead of the whole thing sucking, right? Like hmm. how we live our lives. Like this is a, an approach that we take. Like we want to make we make we want to make great virtual reality because we want people to have better lives, not just in virtual reality. We want them to have better lives outside of virtual reality. Like, we, like our office culture is awesome because we're reality engineers. You know, like we want to engineer a good life for ourselves. All my best friends are here. We have dogs running around the office. We have kick-ass parties all the time. Like we just, we have a good time. And, uh, you know, if people's experience doing the work isn't any good, then, then that's, 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 that's bad. Um, so it's, it's one part kind of like our product efficiency and product process. 
um, which I'll admit, there's tons of parts of raw data that are not efficient at all from a product development standpoint. And I think you can see it in the product a little bit. It's a little, it can be a little clunky sometimes. It, you know, it takes a little while to load. It's a, it's a product that went through a lot of iteration during its life cycle. Mm. Um, so we want our products to become more efficient, uh, you know, less expensive to produce. Uh, you know, people are, they're having more fun developing things. The easier, you know, like if you're like a painter, the, the, the better you are at painting, um, the more fun you have doing it because something you see something in your head and then you paint it and then you're like, cool, that, I just did, did a work of art. If you have to labor over everything and really grind grind everything out, um, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it drains the fun out of the process. You know, like yeah. we're, we're game developers and this is our craft and we want to be efficient at our craft. It's my, you know, my duty to make sure that everybody here as a game developer is getting better, is, is learning to be more efficient. Um, because it is, when you're doing something that's a craft, um, if you don't like it fundamentally, you're not going to last. People burn out of this industry all the time because they, um, they, they, they can't make like sweet love to their tools well enough, I guess <laughs> I, you could say. I, I think what you're saying applies to a lot of fields, honestly. I guess they're great words of wisdom. Yeah, well, it's 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 very important. I mean, if you want to have that longevity, like you know, the, the people that I really respect are the ones who are, are are doing the same job that they've been doing, you know, that they they did forty years ago, mm-hmm. right? And they're still doing it. They get up every day excited to do it. That's the to me, that's the life, right? Like, there's um, there's a, uh, I think uh, the the Japanese have a word for this. It's um, what is it? Uh, I think it's dough. I think. I- um, yeah, it's just uh, it's we, we, so basically their culture is uh, part of the reason why they're so good at making video games is that it's just it's a craftsman culture. It's it's a culture about repeated processes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, so you know, uh, dough I think means like the way. It's like the way the way that you consistently do things, like bushido, for example. Um, and we have we're always trying to refine our way of doing things to make that process as efficient and enjoyable as possible so that it has that longevity i guess we don't want it we don't want to burn out so that's why every game developer when you're hiring someone the first thing is like how what's crunch like right because everyone's aware of this right mm-hmm. uh, and so we're, we're constantly trying to to engineer that and then we're balancing with product quality and when you have to crunch too much to get a high quality product mm-hmm. you haven't correctly calibrated that and then game companies they they, they burn out you know fundamentally because of that hmm. Very, huh? That's that's awesome to hear, and I'm glad that you guys are are, you know, successful and having a great time while yeah. doing it. So I would say that's we're that's, trying. <laughs> that's not even relevant. That's that's relevant to a lot more than just game companies, too. I would say. Oh yeah, for sure. And you can tell. I mean, when I, I think I think products that come out of an environment like that, I mean, it, it shows, right? It's 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 a level of of percep- perfection and polish that I don't think you get from necessarily just grinding it out and and you know spending every minute of a night on something versus enjoying it and really putting like your heart and soul into something it's like something. Uh, it's like cooking when you uh, when you make something with love it just tastes tastes a little bit better but yeah no yeah. I, I i totally i totally get where you're coming from yeah it's all i mean the, the simplest way to, to boil it down is that it's um when you're when someone is playing a game you want them to be in a flow state right you guys know the, the concept of flow mm-hmm. the chiksamihai concept and then when you're doing your work you want to be in a flow state i mean shit you want to be in flow state all the time, you know, like that's the best way to, to live your life. If you can maintain that flow state, uh, you know, you're, um, you're having fun, you're, you're, in, you're enjoying life. Uh, and so um, if we can have our games have, hit the flow state and have our work hit the flow state, then we're looking pretty good. Very cool, very cool. Well, um, 
I want to be, uh, we want to be respectful of your time. So we just got a couple more yep. questions for you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so the, the first one, just, I guess, getting off the, the topic of, of raw data, maybe looking at VR as a whole. And I feel like you may have answered this already, but we, we tend to ask you. Were, if- you were pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> exhaustive in and of yourself. Like we have, we have some questions we were, we were thinking about. We usually kind of step in, but you did a really good job of, <laughs> yeah. of hitting a lot of things that we were interested in. So oh, which, thank you. Which is great. You actually made our job a lot easier. <laughs> but um, well, one, one of the questions that I, I feel like we posed to, or we, want, we like to ask to developers just because uh, you guys are in, you have a unique perspective on, on the industry. And uh, maybe this after this conversation and going through it, it, it might seem a little elementary. You might have answered it in several different ways already, but uh, it's it's a hypothetical. So, like, what's one wish that you have for the future of VR? And I, you know, the hypothetical that we give is, you know, if you were at the head of Oculus or or HTC right now, where would you be focusing your your resources? And and since um, since you guys are a software company, I would say focus on the hardware side. And I, and I think an answer from you would actually be more uh, informed just because of the hardware experience that you guys have. Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a good question. Um, hmm. I, I think uh, converting more customers, very simply, is, mm-hmm. is important. And I think taking a hard look at how to do that, um, I think uh, price point is probably... A large part of that, um, you know, there's there's 20, 30, 40 million PC gamers out there, um, uh, or anything more than that. It's like more like 100 million, but it's you know, like like if you're looking at something like Steam, sure. um, you know, you're gonna sell to like 40 or 50 million or something like that. Um, and you know, the fact if you if you sell into 10 percent of the market or 5 percent of the market, you're doing really well and you can make a lot of money that, that way. And that's kind of what that's the engine that drives the industry. So everyone is trying to look at. How do we expand um, the number of customers uh, that we have for these titles? Mm-hmm. And I think there's you know there's a few ways to look at that. One of them is just you know get more people to buy headband displays and, and get them to use them consistently, right? That's the other side. The flip side of it is to simply say that these are peripherals and to make games that support both VR and non-VR um, and to really kind of come up with designs that support that well. Like there's a ton of games that I've played where you could make the same game for both VR and non-VR, and it wouldn't really hurt that much. Like I was, I was playing um, Player Unknown's Battle, uh, Battlegrounds, um, and it was just super fun. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, especially with that engine because it's uh, based on the Arma engine, which is based mm-hmm. on the Operation Flashpoint engine. They've already have the head um, kind of disconnected from the arms and kind of how they build the skeleton of the characters and how they render it out. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to add VR support to that and add touch support to that and have your character you know, move around and do all the stuff that you normally do in the game just in VR. It would kick ass. Does it support and track IR already? Or I'm, I'm trying I, to think. I honestly don't know. I, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm not as, you know, um, well-informed on that. But sure. to, to me, the um, the idea that VR can be uh, a strongly supported thing and kind of like uh, recommended to make your experience a lot better, but the game still works in non-VR, uh, I think is a powerful idea that hasn't really been embraced because everyone is so... I don't know what it is. There's like a purism that kind of goes on where people say, uh, why is this in VR if it doesn't, you know, if it's only in VR or this or that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it's that kind of, uh, that purism or that kind of focus on, on the, like an incredibly laser focus on VR that's actually blinding us to the fact that we should just be embracing, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, both at, at the same time. And that's actually, that might very well just be the solution to the problem. Hmm. Interesting. 
would you ever consider putting uh, the games that you guys are, are coming out with in the future on, you know, both a VR and non-VR platform? Yeah, it's definitely something we're considering. And, it, you know, it's uh, it's all about that design and um, figuring out kind of what's the best use case there and, and, and also what kind of like how users like work with something like that back and forth. I think it's pretty possible with Steam uh, and with Oculus because like those platforms are... Um, you know, they're PC-based, right? You're sitting yeah. in a computer, mm. you they start playing view. VR. And, yeah, they view yeah. headsets as peripherals, like you said, for the most part, versus versus like the Oculus or some, some other, you know. Steam, Steam very much looks at all of, I mean, when you, when you look at your games, it shows you, right, all the headsets, it shows you all the controllers, and really, yeah, you could see a, a potential where software would just support all of the different setups, and it's up to yeah. the user whether they want to, put on their headset and and have a more, you know, immersive experience or they're feeling a mm-hmm. little lazy and they want to kick back on the couch and just turn something on on the TV. So and, it, and I think uh just the other the other approach I think to that is to make something that just kicks an incredible amount of ass in VR. <laughs> like it's just so good that you just need to stay in there and <laughs> I think, uh, you know I, I think like uh an MMO is probably like the holy grail, you know. Um, and it sucks because there's not that many VR users, right? But you have to, at the end of the day, you have to have someone with capital take a leap of faith and and make a larger product like that. And I'll say an MMO that had um, that had VR compatibility or pre- potentially asymmetric VR compatibility. Um, what do you mean was, by asymmetric VR compatibility? So what it means is like um, you have one class of character that's your PC character and one class of character that's like your VR character. Oh, so they're playing together. Playing together, but with different... Um, design considerations so they're sure. balanced properly. Uh, and then if you design the game around that, maybe like one race is like the VR race and the other one is like, you know, like the PC characters race. Hell, maybe you have one for like a controller based one too and they all are, they're slightly different but they all kind of coexist. Hmm. Um, if you made something like that, then, you know, you can, you still can make your money back by having it be uh, kind of, um, you know, supporting kind of the non-VR platforms. But if it's properly kind of gamified and you really, and you really make like a solid kind of, you know, something, something like high fidelity, but it's like a game, right? Like, sure. um, and, and probably, you know, of a very high fidelity, I guess, so to speak, something like that, I think would catalyze a lot of the market. And, and especially if you're going to give someone experience, they can really only get in VR and it's like, the 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 next version of wow yeah like, yeah that's what i'm thinking wow. in my head yeah like that that type of thing it's like wow but like with fully because you, you know, know like, there's like, something there's i was gonna say still to this day there's something about like i mean we play games all the time in vr right but like it's always shocking to me when i'm in a game with someone else and i have to explain to them something or i'm interacting in some way that just like i don't know something about seeing that person react in such a r- realistic fashion that you're just it's like still mind-blowing like every time oh, yeah. i i have to i you you just resort to just natural like an mmo would be amazing in vr if it was done right yeah and i think oculus uh you know oculus has had an eye toward a lot of that tracking technology the ability to um to to kind of track facial expressions and things sure. like that like there's a lot of innovation eye tracking right a lot of innovation that has to come through some of the peripherals um but yeah i think an mmo created like that and one that had real gameplay you know that you actually mm-hmm. wanted to really get into yeah i think has a, an incredible amount of potential very cool very cool indeed well um i guess we just got a couple more and the, the last question is just going to be mainly a, a a way for people to get in touch with you and uh, where they can learn more. But 
looking to the future, uh, I know we spoke a little bit about Sprint Vector uh, earlier in the interview, but I, was there anything else you wanted to touch on or, you know, what I, I, the, the general question is, what can we look forward to from Servios in the future? And I know Sprint sure. Vector's on the horizon and I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to mention that we, we hadn't previously talked about, but you wanted to highlight. Yeah, I mean, so Sprint Vector, there's definitely more features coming. I don't want to spoil any of them, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, more coming than kind of what we've shown so far. And, you know, we're, we're very, very excited about that. Um, and then uh, we have another title we're developing that I can't talk about, but also very exciting. And then titles coming after that. Um, so, you know, th- there's a lot coming down the pipeline. Like, this is not, I guess the, my point here is don't think of Servios like, you um, Oh, they raised like a bunch of money. They'll throw that money into raw data. Or don't think of us like, oh, we took a crack at VR and then, um, you know, kind of like Rocketworks where they're like, oh, well, we're not sure about <laughs> VR now, so we're going to go make something else. Yeah, like, no, yeah. we're making like more VR titles that are all going to be like fucking awesome. So just like stay tuned, basically, is what I have to say. Awesome. I'm very excited to hear that. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, so that being said, is there a place that, you know, what's the best way that people can keep in touch with you guys, follow the updates, uh, interact, or just, you know, uh, stay tuned to what Servios is doing? Yeah, so follow us, uh, you know, Servios, uh, preferably uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and that's probably the, the best way to kind of follow the stuff that we're doing. And then, um, and obviously, you know, our website and our game websites. And then um, you can follow me, Nathan Burba, on Twitter. And if you want to ever, if anybody ever wants to reach out to me, just you know, send an email to Nathan at Servios.com. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Cool. Well, there you guys have it. Uh, Nate, just, well, first off, want to say thank you for taking the time. This has been awesome. Uh, but two, like Ronnie was saying earlier, I mean, we're excited. We we do appreciate the passion that you approach VR with, and uh, you know, it's it's exciting to talk to someone like yourself who's been in it and is excited for the future. Just because you do you do see all those moving parts, you see how it all is coming together. And so, when we hear someone like yourself excited about it, I think that just makes us uh, even more pumped about what's to come. So we we do appreciate awesome. that. Yeah, my pleasure. But thanks again. And uh, for everyone listening, there will be links to everything in the show notes. Uh, We'll put a link to the website and uh, raw data on Steam. But until next time, guys, take care and talk soon. 